This is a podcast from the University of Manchester's Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics. For more information, see jodcast.net. For this month's Jod Bite, I'm joined in the studio by friend of the show, Laura Dreesen. Hey. Uh, who's here to talk about a very exciting discovery uh, that she's been a part of. I'll leave that to you. Sure. Tian and I are both part of the Trap team, which is more transients and pulsars. Um, but I'm also in another team uh, that works with the Meerkat telescope called Thundercat. Um, and for those of you who haven't heard us talk about it many, many times before, Meerkat is a radio telescope in South Africa, which is 64 radio dishes that each is about 14 meters in diameter. And the furthest apart two dishes are is eight kilometers. So it's a really big and exciting new instrument that's been observing for what, about a bit more than a year? Um, so the Thundercat team is looking at things in the radio sky that change brightness over time, or sometimes we see them in the radio or sometimes we don't. So what we've been doing is looking at this one object called GX339-4, um, which it looks like a, just a dot in the right. middle of the image, yeah. which is, you know, it's still very exciting. Well, I've seen it. It's not impressive. It, no. Know, at first glance. But yeah. At first well, glance, yeah. it just looks like a dot in the middle. Yeah. But... Um, it's a really interesting source, so interesting that Thundercat has said they're going to observe it every week for five years, yep. which is great, especially for me, because I'm interested in sources, other sources that we don't know about yet, that also change brightness or sort of appear and disappear in the radio. So GX339 is a dot in the middle, and then there actually is over 600 other sources in the field. So that means that we get 600 bonus sources every week with Meerkat, which means that we can see whether any of these things change over time. Right. So this is really hard in general in radio astronomy because we normally don't come back to the same fields very often. And even if we do, most people don't check if things have changed. They're interested in their one thing, which is fine because the one thing is probably really interesting. But in December last year, Antonio Rawlinson of the University of Amsterdam and Astron had a look at this field to see if anything changed and something had. So that was really exciting. Yeah. And lucky for me, I joined the team a week or so before the discovery was made. And um, I put my name down to look at any stars that did something interesting in the radio. And when Antonia found this source that had suddenly had a, a pretty bright flare in the radio, um, it lined up smack bang on top of a star. So they went, here you go, Laura. Here's That's a really source. Cool. No, no. <laughs> In perpetuity, you'll have your name associated with the first Meerkat transient. Sure, yeah. Cool. It is. It's really exciting. And um, I think for me in particular, when I started my PhD, because I'm a third-year PhD student here at the University of Manchester, Ben, my supervisor, said, you're also going to look at flare stars. And as a radio astronomer who's looked at pulsars and fast radio bursts and things like that, I sort of went, oh, stars. Yeah. Do stars even do anything interesting? Um, And a lot of radio astronomers sort of have the same attitude right. i've been converted ben Just was right of gas, right? yeah exactly you know right. if it's not like a galaxy or a pulsar yeah. eh. <laughs> made of exotic matter or anything yeah exactly yeah. it's just it's just a normal well we'll get into that but it's just a normal <laughs> yeah. star yeah, this one might be an exception. yeah exactly but i think it's kind of nice as well that so stellar flares so radio flares in particular from stars or from from binaries or systems that have a star in them aren't really that well studied. They were studied pretty well in the the 90s and earlier, um, but 
these things are really hard to observe because if we looked with a single dish telescope, like the Lovell telescope, as we all are very familiar with the Lovell telescope, these things often just look kind of like noise, like the rubbish that we cut out when we're observing other sources. So it's, you know, usually we don't see these things just because they look like rubbish. So we ditch them in the radio. So the huge advantage of Meerkat, not just that we're looking at the same field multiple times, is that it's an interferometer. So we can say that what would normally look like kind of noise junk that we would see in a single dish, we can be like, oh, look, it's actually something because we can really confirm that when we have all these dishes together. Yeah, so once you spotted the transient and the meerkat images, what was the next step after that? So the, I, I mean, as radio astronomers, a lot of the time, if we see something just in the radio, it's quite hard to investigate what it yeah. is. But in this case, because it was smack bang on top of a star, we confirmed that the positions overlapped with this star, and that meant that we had a bit of a treasure trove of historical observations because um, optical telescopes uh, have had really excellent all-sky surveys for a long time. So since we saw that it was a star, we were sort of like, yes, we can observe with lots of other telescopes, and maybe other people have also looked at this source already just by chance. Um, and it turns out that that's true. So there's a lot of archival observations at different frequencies. Uh, sorry, I should say it's optical, so it's wavelengths. You can see my radio astronomer is showing um, when I say frequency instead of wavelength. Yeah, so we looked back and um, Ian McDonald here at the University of Manchester, massive shout out. He is the second author on this paper and he really did an amazing job and really helped out without him. We definitely wouldn't have half the information that we have. So what he did, we had something called the spectral energy distribution. And this is where you take a measurement of the brightness of a star at different wavelengths. So we had from UV up to infrared, including some optical points as well. And what he did was he took those points and used his code. He'd written, I think maybe in his PhD or maybe a little bit after his PhD in one of his postdocs, um, and fit that with a model of what you would expect to see from a few different types of stars. And it turns out that the best fit is something called a K-type subgiant. So that just means it's a little bit older than the sun. It's evolved past, the sun is in the main sequence, it's evolved past that. It's pretty big, as the name giant suggests, and it's about two times the mass of the sun, two and a half times the mass of the sun. So that was a little bit unusual at first. So this is all using just archival observations that people have already taken before. And that was a little bit unusual because a normal flare star, a star that's just on its own and does some interesting radio flaring things and optical flaring things actually, is normally an M-type dwarf. But instead here we have a K-type subgiant. So that was a bit of a surprise and threw us for a bit of a loop. After that, we also found about 18 years of relatively frequent optical observations of this source. So over 18 years, the ASAS uh, survey, KELT survey, and ASSASSIN survey um, have been observing this source pretty much every night when it's a nighttime source, because unlike radio astronomy, optical astronomers can only observe their sources when they're up at nighttime. But it did mean that we had this sort of treasure trove of archival observations and we could then use that to find out more about the star itself. So what uh, did you see in the optical observations? So we found out that this star actually changes brightness over 21 days. So over a period of 21 days, it becomes brighter and then fainter. And that happens pretty much every 21 days that we saw. But the shape of this sort of getting brighter and fainter changed pretty regularly. And that's a bit unusual because if, say, for example, this change in brightness was due to, I don't know, the star being in a binary or something like that, we wouldn't expect the shape of that variability to change. We'd expect it to just sort of stay the same. It's quite tricky to change that if it's caused by an orbit. 
Um, but what we think now is that this is probably caused by uh, star spots. So just like the sun has spots on it, we think that this star has spots on it too. Um, but that these spots are probably much, much bigger than the ones that are on the sun because the ones on the sun look like little dots pretty much, but these ones will be covering a huge chunk of the surface of the star. Um, So we found that out. Um, And once we found out that this star was not only causing these radio flares, but uh, it was interesting in its own right as well, then we went out and started finding our own observations at different frequencies. For example, we asked the SWIFT telescope, which is a satellite that can observe X-rays and UV, And we asked that telescope to have a look for us, and they did, which is very nice. And we found that it is detected in the X-ray and in the UV. The UV wasn't too surprising because that could just be coming from the star itself, but the X-ray, we only got about 18 photons in 1,000 seconds. So that's 18 little specks of light isn't very much, but it still was interesting to know that it has X-ray because most stars, we don't see them in the X-ray at all. And after that, David Buckley in South Africa at the South African Astronomical Observatory took some observations uh, with the SALT telescope, which are actually something we call spectra. And this is where we take the light from the star and split it up into all the different wavelengths. And using that, we can see what we call lines, absorption lines from different chemical elements from the star. And we can find out a lot of information about that, more information on the type of star, but it actually just looked like a sort of -of run-of-the-mill K-type subgiant like we expected. Um, we found out using those lines that the star itself is what we call chromospherically active, and that just means that it has some magnetic field. So again, kind of like the sun, but a bit more intense and stronger. And we also found out that the star is in a binary. So unlike what previous optical surveys had thought, it's not a star just by itself, it's in a binary. And that was really interesting because that might tell us, well, hopefully eventually, but not right at this point, (laughs) might tell us where the radio is coming from. Because like I said, it's not that common for stars to flare or even be visible in the radio. Normally, when we look with a telescope like Meerkat, most of the things we see are galaxies, not individual stars. They're normally just so faint in the radio that we don't see them at all. Yeah. So what can you say about the companion, if anything? (laughs) So at the moment, not that much. So from these spectral observations that we took with the SALT telescope, we can see that The orbit of this binary is the 21 days that we saw with the other optical observations. That wasn't too surprising. And we found out that its companion, it's a little bit uncertain. So some of this is sort of speculation, but scientific speculation. I shouldn't say we're just making things up, that's for sure. But from the information that we know, we can see that this companion is about one and a half times the mass of the sun or more. So that's sort of the minimum mass that it could be. But we can't see it. So we can't actually see, except for a tiny, tiny hint in the spectra, we can't actually see any evidence of this star. We can just see the K giant star. Right. So if it were heavier, you would expect it to be seen in the in the spectra of the... Yeah, absolutely. And also just in our other observations, in yeah. the, the normal optical, all those 18 years of observations and, and the um, previous historical optical observations, we would expect to sort of have a hint that maybe there's a partner in crime to this giant star. But at the moment, all we can see is the giant star. And if we had a star that was about one and a half times the mass of the sun, we would see it. We would see it in the spectra and we would see hints of it in the other observations that we have. So that sort of rules out that it's just a normal, I guess, like a, a star like the sun. As far as we can tell, it can't be a star like the sun because we can't see it. Uh, So that leaves us with a few options, mainly compact objects. So we've heard a bit about 
on the Jodcast, I know we hear a lot about neutron stars and pulsars because they're a bit of a staple here and at Jodrell Bank. Uh, So it could be a neutron star or it could be a black hole or it could be a white dwarf. So those were sort of our options. The problem is white dwarfs, which are cold, dead stars, uh, they can't be just by physics rules. They can't be any heavier than 1.6 times the mass of the sun because once they get heavier than that, they collapse under their own pressure. Yeah. So that sort of rules that one out. And unless the the sort of uncertain measurements that we have are completely off, which I don't think they're completely off, they can't be one of those, which is a bit unusual because a lot of binaries are a white dwarf with another star that's just not yet a white dwarf. Usually it's, it's a white dwarf with a star that will eventually become another white dwarf. So it's a bit weird that it's a giant with either a neutron star or a black hole, as far as we can tell. Yeah, so the constraints that you have on the mass of the companion, do they fall, like, encompassing neutron stars and possibly black holes as well? Yeah, absolutely. So it's probably getting close to the edge of what could be a neutron star as well, to be totally honest. Um, I don't want to come out and say that it's a black hole, because that would be a big call. (laughs) But just speculatively, it could be a black hole. It's a possibility. Yes, exactly. Because neutron stars, as far as we can, as far as we know now, get up to about two times the mass of the sun. Um, so once we get a bit more than that, then there's pretty much only one option yeah. left, just because we can't see it. So it has to be something quote unquote invisible, <laughs> um, and quite heavy. So that makes it a bit tricky to fit things into that model. So it's pretty unusual, uh, and especially because we see radio flares from it. So that's the the kind of real, yeah. what is this, that we're seeing a star system that has radio flares. It's not unheard of, but in this particular one, it's just a bit odd. Right. So what would be the next step in kind of trying to tie down what exactly this is? So what we'd really love, and we've asked for some XMM-Newton observations. Now, XMM-Newton is another space telescope, and this one is X-ray. So we've already talked about how we detected this, the source in the X-ray with SWIFT. Um, and SWIFT is a really excellent instrument, but this source is pretty far away. It's about 1,800 light years away or about 550 parsecs. So we need a really sensitive X-ray telescope, and XMM is more sensitive than SWIFT. So in that 1,000 seconds with SWIFT, we get only 18 photons. We'd expect to get many, many more with XMM-Newton instead. And what we'd really like is to see if the X-rays are changing, because at the moment with SWIFT, we just can't tell because it's so few photons, we can't tell if anything's changing in the X-ray. And also we can get something called an X-ray spectrum. So we can actually see what kind of X-rays we're getting. So that could give us a hint about exactly where this X-ray brightness is coming from. Because at the moment, all we can say is that the X-rays are coming from the system. We can't say if if it's coming from the subgiant or if it's coming from this unknown companion. If the companion were a compact object, would we expect the X-rays to be coming from there? It's possible. So it depends if there's a, if there's an accretion disk yeah. or not. So that that would be really what we would be looking for an accretion disk. Um, but it also would it would be fine if the X-rays were all coming from the giant star, because there's a type of star that's called an RS Canum Venaticorum, which is a bit of a mouthful, but it's named after the first t- star of its kind, which was named RS Canum Venaticorum. We call them RSCBNs because it's much less of a mouthful. And those stars can be by themselves X-ray luminous. Um, So that wouldn't be unheard of. But it's really, if we get more photons, then we can get a spectrum and that tells us what sort of X-rays they are. So that would really 
kind of tell us where they're coming from, whether they're coming from the star or from the companion. Uh, And we'd also really love a UV spectrum as well. So a spectrum, it's all about the spectra, uh, a spectrum in the ultraviolet. But the only place you can get one of those is from Hubble. So XMM, Newton, we're already, it's quite tricky to get observations from that because we think this is really cool, but there might be 20 other people who have also proposed for something equally cool that are fighting for the exact same time on the telescope. So it's really tricky to get yeah. time on these Good telescopes. Luck Hubble time. Oh, yeah, exactly. So compared to XMM, Hubble is just crazy. So many people, and as they should, because it's a really ex- excellent instrument. So we will ask for time on that and see how we go. But a UV spectrum, if this, if the companion is a white dwarf or something like that, it would be really obvious in the UV spectrum. Um, and if we got some extra lines, so these chemical elements, these lines would really give us a hint about whether any of the light that we see is coming from the companion. Uh, And then if it is a white dwarf, then that's interesting because we have to explain why it's at least 1.5 solar masses because that's quite on the edge of where a white dwarf can be. Yeah, I I guess with Meerkat as well, there's another couple of years of weekly observation. Yes, this is for me, this is possibly the most exciting. I guess it might still give us real big clues to what's going on here because we have four more years of observations with Meerkat. They've already been observing it for just over a year now. So we have four more years of weekly observations with Meerkat, plus the Assassin Optical Survey. Every night, it's looking in pretty much every star in the Southern Hemisphere, including this star. So we have both radio and optical observations. So that could really give us some hints, because if, for example, we see a flare in the radio and correspondingly something happens to the optical, or even if we see something interesting happening in the radio and nothing happens in the optical, that could tell us yeah. some hints about what's going on too. Yeah. And Mierlicht as well? The, the... So we would love to have Mierlicht, yeah. but unfortunately the star is too bright. Okay. So uh, the star is what we call 11th magnitude, and that is actually, uh, its magnitudes are weird, uh, but it's too it's bright. bright. Yeah, it's, it's really, really bright. I think it's the, it might even be the brightest optical source in that field. Uh, and Meerlicht is, I guess, a bit too sensitive. It's okay. so good that this star just overexposes and becomes kind of a bit of a weird blob that you can't really measure accurately. I guess we should mention that uh, Meerlicht is the optical telescope that will be shadowing a Meerkat radio telescope. So the idea is to give you simultaneous op- uh, radio and optical observations. Which is really exciting. It's going to yeah. be it's awesome. But in this particular case, our star is just a little bit <laughs> too intense. <laughs> right. But uh, no, if it does turn out to be like some more uh, exotic system that we haven't seen before, it would be really cool to have it be observed like so with such a high cadence, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, so this is especially uh, advantageous because, like I said, uh, flares from stellar systems and from stars are pretty tr- tricky to observe. And also it's hard to say to a telescope, can you please point at this source for 10 hours and maybe we'll see something, maybe we won't. But because this source, we're just getting the observations of it anyway, because it happens to be in the same images that we're taking of this other GX339-4 source. So we're getting a bonus five years. So it'll probably be, don't quote me on this, but it'll probably be the longest uh, monitoring of any stellar flare system ever. It probably already is actually, because you just don't get people looking at stars in the radio when we have, you know neutron stars and black hole binaries and galaxies and jets and all these other things. Um, So hopefully this source will be a bit of a comeback for stellar flares. And also I think it's just kind of the tip of an 
a really big iceberg of transients that Meerkat is going to find just because not not because the other instruments aren't any good they're all excellent but just the nature of the observations that Thundercat are doing they're going back to the same fields over and over again so we're getting longer data sets of multiple times where we have lots of bonus sources so Meerkat's really going to bring the radio astronomers more up to date with the transients hopefully yeah in the, in the GX339 field, are there any other sources that you're looking at or interested in? Yes, there are definitely other sources I'm looking at. I can't tell you about them. Well. Super secret. <laughs> no, they're not super secret, but um, there are other sources in the field that could be doing some interesting things. At the moment, we're trying to just make sure that all of the measurements that we're getting are 100% yeah. on point because it's really tricky. In optical and x-ray and things like that, you can sort of think about it like taking a photo with your camera. But in the radio, it's completely different. We have to take a huge amount of steps in processing and calibrating and making everything sure everything is the right flux density or brightness, that we have to really be careful that we're doing everything exactly right. This source, we double, triple checked and all that sort of thing. But the other sources, because it's such a big field of view that we're looking at with this telescope, we really need to make sure that we've got everything really accurate across all the sources. So we're still checking that, but we do. there are some sources that we're keeping an eye on that we think will be interesting as well. Whether they line up with stars or not, or their galaxies or something else entirely, we'll see. Well, in another four years, we'll have you back on. <laughs> yes, well, hopefully there might be some more coming up next year as well, oh, because okay. even with a year of observations, that's a huge yeah. uh, set of measurements for point sources. So hopefully it's you'll be hearing exciting. some new things soon. Right. We should uh, mention that Laura also wrote a an article for the conversation for a general science audience. So we'll put a link to that one in the show notes. Yep, and we'll put a link to the journal article as well. So yes, if you yes, want to have a look at it, um, please do. <laughs> it's a lot of different observations with lots of different telescopes. Yeah. So it's a really nice example of the combination that you can, so the information that you can get from combining a whole load of telescopes. And a lot of them were in South Africa as well, which is really exciting to use all these new telescopes and things yeah. that are popping up in, in South Africa. So that's a really nice yeah. extra part. Anytime you can look at a meerkat image, is just a great yes. opportunity. <laughs> yes. They're, They're beautiful. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for that, Laura. Thanks, um, Tian. Yeah. Hope to see you very soon. Definitely. See you later. All right. Cheers.